Well, welcome back to our next edition of What's Up America with Mike Kara. As always, probably broadcasting from Ocoee, Florida, USA, planet Earth. And my guest today is Ricky Glore, who is a great stand-up comedian, performer, impressionist, playwright. He just got uh, done writing a, 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 movie, a horror movie, and we'll talk all about that. And first of all, Ricky, why don't you tell us a little bit about your about yourself we mentioned some of the things you do but how you got involved and got started with with this this whole world of comedy and all that yeah thank you for having me on mike um i, I mean it all started everything that i was introduced as far as comedy goes uh, television music um all of my first uh loves and appreciation of that came from my dad showing me different things i kind of grew up with music and television that was not of the the current uh stratosphere it was all 60s stuff it was 50s it was martin and lewis road pictures it was the hope and crosby road pictures um it was the marx brothers it was the monkeys man from uncle the 66 batman all that stuff my dad's big uh, cinephile as well so my comedy tastes were curated by that and then getting into saturday night live like many people uh, older stand-ups and other comedians like Albert Brooks because my dad's love of films um, and then just being so attracted to those things I was like okay well I like this I like creating my own funny things doing voices watching a lot of Looney Tunes and like falling in love with Mel Blanc and Woody Woodpecker and stuff so just doing voices is kind of a goof as a kid uh, and then realizing that a lot of people that I was admiring, people like Phil Hartman, who's my favorite SNL cast member of all time, people like Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, a lot of them had trainings at places like the Groundlings in California, or a lot of SNL people came from the second city, either in Canada or Chicago. So as I started uh, getting older and I also concurrently played sports at the same time, which was a driving force of most of my youth. Uh, I got hurt my junior year of high school. And I was always kind of blending both, doing like choir, doing some theater stuff when I could, but never like a real play because it would always overlap with wrestling or baseball or football. But once I was hurt and I couldn't play sports anymore, I auditioned for West Side Story. and. Uh, if anybody knows the original movie West Side Story, not the new Spielberg one that's coming out, but the 60s one, or is it, yeah, 60s, um, Natalie Wood, uh, there's a part of Gladhand, who's the leader of the dance, who's a nerdy character, and he breaks up the Jets and the Sharks, and he's a comic relief when they're having the dance at the gym. Well, in the movie, it's played by John Aston, who is most famous for being Gomez in the original Adams Family because I was such a nerd, I was like, I'm auditioning specifically for that part in high school. Like on the form you write, like, is there a part you're interested in? Everyone's like, oh, I want to be Tony or I want to be Riff. I want to be Bernardo. I want to be Maria. And I'm like, glad hand, the leader of the dance. And the director was like, you know, this character only has one scene. And I'm like, yeah, but he, it's a comedic scene, right? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, yep, that's what I want. And so from then on, I was in all the shows for the rest of my high school career, musicals, plays, The Crucible, 
got to be Thomas Putnam, which is like the biggest jerk uh, in the play. Got to be a villain, and that was my second show, so that was awesome. There's nothing more fun than being like a great character actor, especially a villainous one. Um, and then I went to college and pursued theater, pursued improv. I couldn't get on the school's improv team. Like I said, I was learning where all these comedians, where they got their tutelage of like Second City and where they started off. And so I wanted to kind of be on that same path. And I wanted to do the school's improv team, which was kind of coveted. And I couldn't get on the team. I auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and couldn't make it. So I saw that a local comedy club, Funny Bone, was offering uh, stand-up comedy classes with the comedian Jeff Jenna. And I immediately signed up and started doing stand-up as my comedy outlet. I like doing stand-up, getting able to write and find a microphone and a stage whenever you want is pretty amazing. You could think of something a second before you hit the stage and you could do it. Doesn't mean it's going to work. Doesn't have a lot of confidence, but I love the thrill and the spontaneity of that. But my true passion was collaborating and working with others. But I think the confidence that stand-up gave me and kind of the discipline um, helped me in college with theater and then got me noticed for the improv team, which I ended up making but from that point i was doing college theater improv sketch comedy while also having this kind of double life of becoming a house mc at the local funny bone comedy club getting to work with an array of different people that i admired and looked up to for years like kevin nealon jim brewer tracy morgan um pretty much any time an snl person came through i was there at the the manager's office being like, I, I see they're coming in six months. Can I, can I MC for them that weekend? Can I, can I be the MC? And I'd usually get it. Oh, well, that's, that's uh, so, so great, uh, Ricky. So I want to talk about your standup, but first of all, I want to mention, you know, to our audience that might not be familiar you know, with my TikTok page is that I actually had featured you on a series that I do on TikTok who I am thankful for on TikTok. And it was neat because, you know, I, 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 you know, I didn't know you for the life of me, but, you know, when I saw your page and I saw your impressions and I, especially your stand-up uh, comedy, it's like I've known you for 20 years. Your stand-up <laughs> is so great because it, it, it really does relate to people. I mean, I'm sure that's what you were going for. Huh? Yeah, but what's crazy is like... Uh... Jerry Seinfeld has one of the best things, uh, a way to talk about the maturity of a stand-up. It's in the documentary Comedian, which is kind of a, a personal Bible to me. Some people have books that is kind of my stand-up Bible, where he says, the amount of years <clears throat> that you've been doing stand-up is kind of how old you are. So like if you've been doing stand-up for five years, you kind of act like a five-year-old and your approach to comedy is kind of the way a five-year-old would, you know, farting, you know, funny noises, whatever. That's your level of maturity. And as you do stand-up more, your maturity raises. Well, I for, let's say, I've been doing it since 2005. Um, I had a lot of the stories um, that are in my dry bar comedy special that you're referencing to, I think are the clips, um, especially about my family and where I was born and where I was raised. I had all that since I was a kid and in high school, I never talked about that stuff 
because I didn't feel confident in the life that I had led yet where I could reflect back on that and mine that for, for humor. And so it took maturing and living to be like, okay, now let's reflect back on what I find is funny and not just fabricating or creating one-liners or jokes, like actually stepping, having the maturity to step back and observe what I find humorous that happens in my everyday life. I realized that I had some unique things um, that maybe not everybody was talking about. I mean, not like the most unique like stances or viewpoints on things, but like for instance, one thing, it's not on the dry bar, but it's on my first album, Spitting Image. Um, I have like a an eight-minute story about visiting the Burt Reynolds Museum and Ranch on a family vacation three times growing up and an incident that happened on the third time that we went there. And comedians are constantly striving for, okay, everyone talks about relationships. Everyone talks about their wives or their boyfriends or dating or whatever or the hardships of home and finances or politics or religion, you want to try to find something unique. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure no other comedian is going to have a story about going to the Burt Reynolds Museum and Ranch in Jupiter, Florida for the third time, finding out that it's closed down and that Burt Reynolds is bankrupt. And then their dad defacing one of the buildings to take a piece of it with him home. (laughs) So I was like, I think I can tell that story and it will be unique. Oh, great. You know, one thing you mentioned, uh, you know, about dry bar and if uh, our audience aren't familiar, you know, they have certain, you know, guidelines like, you know, clean comedy. I mean, for the most part, do you consider yourself, you know, clean comic or? Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah, yeah. Dry bar. They have guidelines. Um, What's interesting, though, is there's not a rigid set of guidelines like there's a video and there's um it's like hey maybe there's some some topics you should stay away from and oddly enough the burt reynolds story that i mentioned i recorded because you record uh two shows you go and do two live shows and they record both and they mix uh, a little bit of both show to make the one special and i told the burt reynolds story because like i said for the unique quality and there's nothing uh, lascivious, there's nothing dirty, there's no innuendos in it, and it didn't make the special. And I was surprised, and I was like, oh, I, I thought that story went pretty well. Um, it would definitely like said you'd be unique. I wonder why they cut it. And my mom said, well, I bet you because it's about stealing, because your dad stole from the museum and i was like oh maybe and i told my brother and he's like well i bet you it's because it's about stealing i was like all right i guess that must be it um yeah i i am pretty much a clean comic um you can work way more rooms if you can be clean uh there's there's more of a marketability factor but i've definitely if there's not restrictions um i can be closer to a pg-13 or an r and it's not like i have different material it's just, I maybe have less of a filter on where my brain will go or maybe what specific words I might say. Um, not that I'm just like Scarface over here saying the F word 182 times throughout the day in conversations, but you know, I, I may skew a little bit more honest 
if if the permutations aren't necessarily thrusted upon you. And what's crazy is like older odd there are some comedians, this goes, I think, a little bit of maturity, I myself included, back in the day when I would see an older audience, I would be like, oh. Oh, they're older. The stuff that I'm talking about, you know, when I was in my 20s, I'm like, oh, they're not going to have any, they're not going to have a time of day for it about dating and, you know, um, what the dating scene is like and what I'm into when I was young. And it turns out older crowds typically like a little bit of a dirtier comedian, which I find funny. Now, granted, unless it's a show that is propagating that these this is the night of clean comedy then you know you stick to those guidelines and you know you don't like i said i don't change my act but i'm not a political comedian anyway not that i don't think political comedy isn't funny i think it has a short i think it has a short set life a shelf life um but there are other comedians that do it way better than i do like uh hassan minaj and there's just lewis black just much smarter comedians that that is their bread and butter and they're great at mine. Not so much. Mine's funny voices and stories about my wife and my daughter. And uh, Ricky, so I wanted to ask you, and I've talked to comedians about this and that is, you know, when you're, you're there, you've got everything set up, you know, to do a, a stand-up show. And then a guy brings his kid in, but then he says, that's okay. He's heard it all. You could just do your show, whatever. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, the guy did say, hey, just do what you were going to say. Or do you, do you try to change it if there's a kid there? Or? No, I think it, I think it's 100% on the parents. We, uh, as you mentioned, as a playwright, while in Chicago, I wrote a parody of A Nightmare on Elm Street called A Nightmare on Backstreet. So it was the movie Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddie, but to the music of Backstreet Boys. And obviously there are Freddy Krueger character. There's, there's gore and there's, there's killing and there's blood and fake blood and stuff. Um, and on one of the performance nights, a woman, I would say in her 30, late thirties, early forties had her son, which is probably like eight to 10 years old. And then she was also accompanied by what looked like her mother. So probably like a 60 year old woman. And they came in the ticket booth, sold them their ticket, which those the owners of the theater. So they, I imagine there was a conversation that was had before they even came in of like, well, you know what you're going in to see. And everyone in that party signed off and being like, well, kind of what you said, my, my kid's okay with it. We're okay with it. Kids are okay with it. So even before the show, we were tossed around like, well, should I, should someone say something like do a pre-show announcement of just like, Hey, so you know what the show is? It's a version of the rated R movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, so there's going to be excessive amount of gore, violence, sexuality, and boy band dancing, <laughs> like just to make it like a little joke. And so I went in front of the house and I made that announcement, kind of not directing it right to them, but like being like letting the rest of the audience know, like, hey, they must be okay with this. They know what the show is. So you be, you be loose with it too, because who it really affects is the rest of the audience. Um, not really me, the comedian, or them. But so anyway, the show starts. There's uh, a couple kills. There's some language. And uh, they're fine with it. All up until the point, there's a scene that mimics um, a scene in the movie where one of the characters is in its whitey tidies. And that is when the grandmother 
decided that she had to pull the kid out of the theater was because a little bit of male nudity. And I was just like, that's interesting. The language is in, and the violence wasn't it. You're worried about the partially naked. What, a, what someone would see as like a man in a Speedo on a beach. That's what did it for you. But yeah, that's a long way of answering. No, um, you, you kind of have to, you, you kind of have to just take their word for it. And especially if you're at a venue where it's kind of like, not my monkey, not my circus. Like I'm hired to do a job. I'm here to entertain the audience. I can't let that interfere or change what the rest of the audience came for. Hopefully the venue has been verbal with them that they know what they're getting into and have gotten that assurance. And hopefully the venue has said, if there's any kind of disturbance, you have, you have to leave. Um, I've done shows where there's been a baby in the audience. This is like less than a month ago. This husband and wife had a baby in um, a carrier and the baby started crying during the show, during the other two comedians who were opening for me. And so what that did was the comedians didn't change their act, but what it did was it gave those comedians fuel to comment on it in the moment and give that spontaneity, which audiences love. Well, great. So, Ricky, you know, we're talking about, you know, being a playwright. So explain a little bit. I, we kind of got the gist of it that you you wrote this like Nightmare on Elm Street parody and then you perform it. Is that, that how it works with these plays? Or I didn't perform in any of the uh, the shows that I wrote in Chicago. I As many hats as I wear, I would write and direct them and produce uh, most of them, all but one of them. Um, I never... You, you have to wear so many hats. It's very hard to then put yourself in it because you can't really then give the actors the direction that they need and you can't give the focus to all the other things because also these shows are extremely low to no budget. Um, it's all done kind of in a very gypsy style. You open up a trunk and you grab some cops, costume pieces kind of thing. Uh, the one thing recently that I have been in that I wrote and co-directed was the horror movie. And that came out of necessity because uh, Nick Hyans, who's the co-director and, and the cinematographer of the movie, uh, we were trying to come up with an idea of something that we could feasibly do to make into a feature film. That was a goal of ours. We had filmed short films. We used to do a sketch comedy show together in college. And we were like, okay, we have to come up with something where we know our lead actor would be reliable. And so I'm like, well, I would be reliable. So I guess if we have to do it, I'll be in it. And then because of that, we kind of use that as the mother of invention to then make the story based around me knowing that I was going to play the character. So then it kind of became a semi-autobiographical story about uh, my character having gotten hurt in high school, being an athlete, a promising athlete, got hurt in high school. And the difference between me and this fictional character was I pivoted real quickly and, and went to the arts. I didn't wallow in depression. Um, I didn't get hooked on pain meds or anything. Um, I didn't become an alcoholic or anything. Uh, I Im immediately had a path that I was confident in following and had a passion. The character in the movie doesn't. Their identity was the sports. And so once they get hurt, they kind of wallow in their own sadness and become a depressive alcoholic. 
um, until he one day wakes up, he's 35, and he's like, do I have anything to live for? And the, the pitch line, like the short pitch for the movie is, what happens to the teen slasher movie when they grow up? A longer version is, what if The Breakfast Club turned into the big chill and went camping in a Friday the 13th movie? Great. So, uh, Ricky, you know, getting back to stand-up comedy for a minute, I wanted to talk, you know, I like to ask comedians about this, and that's how you handle heckler, hecklers. But, I mean, I, I don't think a dry bar that, first of all, they would be having hecklers. But, I mean, in general, is there a certain way to make the show not too awkward if there's a heckler? That kind of, again, goes a little bit to the venue. I mean, any comedian with their salt, should be able to diffuse it or deal with it but that's only to a certain extent because if someone's heckling they're usually imbibed with some liquid courage so they're maybe not making the most sound of choices and they don't really know how off the rails they are can't really make the best decisions so if it gets to too bad of a point it's up to the venue to get that person out of there because again they're ruining the show for the rest of the audience but if someone, some people go to shows and they don't realize that it's not like watching TV. When you say things, the people in front of you can hear you. <laughs> so uh, at, at, when those things happen, you try to quickly roll with it or there's times where you can just ignore it. Uh, Jay Moore has a great thing in his uh, book about his time on Saturday Night Live and about um, doing stand-up, where he says, when you're first doing stand-up, you hear a thousand things from the stage. You hear a glass breaking in the kitchen. You hear someone, um, you hear the, the fork and silverware of someone in the back row of the theater, of the comedy club. You hear the pop of a microphone. You hear so many things because you're new to it and your confidence is 100% there. The more you do it, that number doesn't dwindle down to zero, but there's like five. And so you're able to ignore a lot more and just go with the flow and things don't kind of knock you off track. So sometimes with hecklers or people being a little too noisy, there's, there's ways to shut them down. There's ways to not embarrass, but there's ways to like involve them and then realize, make them realize that you know you can hear them and other people can hear them and maybe there's a nice way to incorporate them maybe incorporate them in what you're talking about so like if i'm talking about being with my ruckus family during the holidays and they're saying something and i'll be like oh you'd love my drunk uncle jim you're just like him uh minus you have a little bit more facial hair than he does ma'am um, like just, I mean, that's then a real thing. That's just some of the top of my head. There's, there's ways to do it, but yeah, it, it can get to a point where it's just like, Hey, then you need to get rid of that person. But I've been very fortunate, knock on wood, that that's never really happened yet. And one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, about Ricky, you know, there's a guy, Pete Davidson, I'm sure you're very familiar with him. And apparently he wants no video cameras. He wants nobody taping him. Apparently everything is off limits. And I was just wondering, 
I mean, as a comedian, well, he probably don't need the marketing, but as a comedian, wouldn't it be, I mean, a good idea to get your, you know, to, to be on TikToks or YouTube? I mean, wouldn't it be good promotion for, for you to, uh, you know, have people filming you and saying you're so great? It's a little bit of, uh, it's a double-edged sword because you, a lot of comedians, a lot of comedians of notoriety, uh, say for Dave Chappelle, for example, I know there's way more that do this than Dave or Pete. Um, they make you put your phone away and lock them up before the show happens and you get it at the end. That is because we're just now living in a world where everyone is a journalist. Re regardless of the credibility of the journalist, everyone thinks that they can be a news anchor and they can capture something and they can catch something where that again is just very fresh um, think about the Michael Richards incident from what 20 years ago now that would have happened and I think Michael Richards probably thought he was being Lenny Bruce like where he thought using the language that he did which was incorrect and he shouldn't have but I think he was trying to make a social commentary of it not really and I'm not standing up for Michael Richards uh, I don't think he was being verbosely racist I think he was trying, I think he got the best of him. I think he got agitated and he was trying to make it a bit uh, that just didn't succeed. That would have happened in the nineties and no, maybe a couple people would have heard about it, but it kind of would have just been here and then gone. It, not as much time would have been given to it. Um, I think comedians do need to be held for accountability. Uh, but the reasons why I say like Chappelle or Pete Davidson is like, I don't want you recording is they're, they're working on stuff. Like it would be the same as I understand. It's the same agitation of like people going to movies while they're being filmed, like say like the new Batman and or like the new Hocus Pocus, which is a lot of TikTok right now. Hocus Pocus too. Like, Oh, here's photos. Here's photos of them flying. Oh, here's photos of a cameo. And like people are just trying to sensationalize and get things and get them out there or the new Spider-Man movie, right? Like leaked photos from the set, Andrew Garfield and Toby Maguire are in it because this proves it. Everyone's trying to kind of ruin things because they can get views and they can sensationalize it and it'll get them attention. So I understand the comedy club or these venues where you're doing comedy is supposed to be a safe place to work out ideas and work out material. And a lot of times people are getting rough drafts of things. So Pete Davidson doesn't want it out there that they're getting a rough draft of this thing that he's just like crafting and he's curating and it isn't right yet. And maybe he's not saying the right thing and maybe it is offensive, but he's not meaning to be offensive because he just hasn't shaped it. I heard that Dave Chappelle purposely will start off saying things that he knows are offensive to see if he can make comedy out of anything because he likes to get that energy and he likes to see if he can dig himself out of the hole. So my one example with this was I went and recorded my first album in uh, February, 2020 in the before times, right in the before times when everything shut down and we did two shows after the first show, the first show went great. That's pretty much what the recording is. A woman came up to the owner of the club and said, I want my money back. And the owner said, why? 
And she said, well, I looked up Ricky on YouTube before coming here. And I watched four videos of him. And that's what his whole show was, was stuff from those four videos. And I was like, and, and they were like, well, yeah, that's, you know, he's, it's an album. It's stuff he's worked on for a while. And then he's, this is kind of like, put like, this is the best presentation of it. You know, you work on it and then you do an album. And she's like, well, I wouldn't have come here if I didn't know it had been a bunch of stuff that I had heard before. And the owner was like, well, I'm sorry, but lucky for you, you're, if you laughed at all, your laugh is on the album and you got to be here for that, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think doing social media is the hardest part and you have to, like I've been asked quite a few times by clubs where it used to be send a tape in sometimes it used to be send an actual tape or a DVD. Like I remember um, Zanies in Chicago, Bert Haas, who used to book that uh, you, I used I, when I first moved to Chicago, I actually sent him a, a DVD of my set for him to watch. Um, but it used to be just send me your best five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And then they would book you based off of that. And it's all opinion based, right? But now it's okay, send me a tape. And what is your social media following? And I, my favorite, like, and I've tried to work on it. I tried to put content out there. It's, it's a little egotistical. It's a little hard for me. Um, that's why a lot of stuff that I do is stuff that I kind of like. So I kind of feel like it is me marketing or working on something. So like impressions, even if they're not good, I'm working on it to see if I can incorporate it somehow in my act, or I'm telling stories about my family, or I'm using Twitter and the great tool that it is of keeping it 140 characters as a joke writing tool for word economy. Um, because I believe in the Seinfeld thing of like, the best thing for word economy is to write out a joke and then take a pen and go through it and mark out all the words that you can get rid of that don't take away from what the actual joke is. It's just a, economizing your, your, your joke to get it as tight as possible and the closest to the purest form of the joke that it can be. So like, that's what I use Twitter for. It's what I use TikTok for. Use it a little bit for the marketing, but like those clips I put up of Drybar are a lot of stuff that's on my album and they're on that special. And I, for the last year, as much as I could after coming out of COVID and things are opening up more, have been working on a new hour. So if they see those videos and they like it, great. Because when they come and see the show, they're not necessarily going to see those things again. So that's a long answer for what you what you asked, but I, I think it's I think it's I think it's complex because a lot of people are trying most people are more involved on social media than celebrities are. Most average people that would come to shows. And so if they can have their phone out and they can record or take a picture or record a video of saying of Pete Davidson saying something that's taboo. And then they can throw it up and be like, look, I got him. Let's cancel him because he said this and you shouldn't be joking about this. Well, that doesn't help him. It only hurts and it hurts whatever that joke or topic could have possibly been because it wasn't ready to come out of the oven yet, but someone recorded it. And now any chance of it 
being something is now dead. Okay, okay, uh, Ricky, one last question here, and then we'll get to your social media and all, all that. One, <laughs> we'll get one... to the thing that I just said. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, where can you follow him? Yeah. One thing I wanted, you know, to, to talk about is I'm, I'm sure you've checked out, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, TikTok, and we you know, encourage everyone to do that. And one thing I do is comedy sketch with different characters. I've got Rico Del Monte and, you know, his brother-in-law, Elmer. And, you know, my question to you is, do you ever think there's a point where you go too far, especially with your writing or your show? I know you you do clean comedy, but my example was originally it was about Elmer's girlfriend. And I was going to say, you know, that she, she needs her seats, you know, she needs her cigarettes and she needs this, she needs that, she needs her meth. But then I said, I don't think that that's really appropriate in my mind. So I changed it to marijuana. I mean, do you ever, when you're writing or you're ever performing, does that ever happen? Like, wait a minute, maybe this is crossing a line. I think it's, I think that, that question um, is a great sister question to what we were just talking about. I think, uh, so to use your example of the character of Elmer, um, thinking, oh, she needs this and she needs meth say you were to do that on stage and doing stand-up and it doesn't get the response that you want. And you're like, I wonder why Matt's not getting the response. Like that, excuse me, that should be where people are laughing. And if you think about it, and if you're trying to be a scientist when it comes to comedy or like a mathematician, like you, you evaluate it and you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to just, just because something doesn't work, I'm just not going to get rid of it. I've got to figure out, I've got to try it a bunch of different ways and see if there is something there. And that's very grueling because nothing is worse than doing something that you know may have not worked and then trying it again and not having a reassurance that it will work and then trying it and it might work, but then doing it again and be like, oh, well, why did it work last time? But it didn't work this time. That's why it's good to record yourself. And I suggest audio, video. I'd say do video when you really want to work on like mannerisms or the physicality of things, but audio is what the audience hears first. Like the words are king. So hear how you present it. Cause a lot of comedians talk too fast and they don't realize it. And maybe sometimes people don't laugh because the audience didn't hear what you said. So I always suggest recording your audio and studying that. So you do that and you're like, okay, well, let's look at this. Maybe it's meth. Where am I at? Am I in an area that may have a meth problem? You know, or may, maybe these people know someone that might be afflicted with methamphetamines or opioids. Um, so maybe if I just change that to marijuana, something that is more ubiquitous with people, something that is that is easier. They know more people that do it. There's not a stigma. It's not as threatening. How many people die of marijuana overdose a year? You know, it's a little easier. So you change it to that and it doesn't really change your joke. It's still the same thing. And then it works and you're like, okay, so that might be what it was. Um, yeah. I, I, I do think about that. I think sometimes the, the tone and the spirit that you uh, approach things and you only find that out by trying it over and over again. And again, if someone were to videotape it, it'd be like, Oh, here's famous comedian, whoever 
they're really crashing and burning here. Don't go see them. Or they talk about this kind of stuff. So like uh, one bit that I had that's new and that I actually asked my mother-in-law if I could talk about was uh, how she can't eat anything that's spicy. Um, and so I have a bit about that. And then it goes into a bit about my mother-in-law loves buying my wife and I decorative hand towels, which she buys a ton of them every year we get a ton of them and they don't function like towels like if you've ever used a decorative hand towel they don't have the absorption factor like the thing a towel is supposed to do and so i have a bit about that and her not being able to eat spicy foods and i asked for her permission like hey i kind of want to do a joke about this is that okay i want to make sure you wouldn't be blindsided by it when you see it because she would see it she would see a show um and i don't want your feelings to be hurt and not as a comedian, you don't have to do that. But like, I talk about my wife about things and she said, yeah, you can talk about me or whatever. I just don't want you to ever say that I'm dumb or that I'm stupid for something or whatever, or that I'm mean. And I'm like, oh no, 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 never be that. But like the stuff with mother-in-law, yeah, since the dawn of time, since Jackie Gleason, I mean, how many sitcoms involve the stereotypical uh, son and mother-in-law and the friction that that causes. But I wanted to make sure that it didn't sound like I was being mean or necessarily disliked my mother-in-law, that these are just observations of things that even if it were my father-in-law, even if it were my own mother, that it's like, these are ticks and observations that I, that I notice that I find humor in and find ridiculous and can dramatize um so yeah i mean that's there's uh before my special and my album i had a bit about my brother coming out of the closet um being openly gay and there was a part of it that i used to do that after a while i was like oh i think i'm doing a little bit of gay face like the gay voice and gay face, almost like it's a menstrual show, but for homosexuality. And I think the audience sometimes is laughing at that, not at the joke or the story I'm telling. And I was like, and that's not what I want them to laugh at. So I'm not going to do that anymore. And I looked at it, I'm like, is there a different way I could do it? I'm like, no, because I think it's just them laughing at like, oh, what a, how silly a, like it was really laying into a stereotype of a gay person and i was like no that's not the that's not the laugh i want and even if an audience member or some audience members do find that funny that's not what i want uh in this chunk right here um so i took it out jerry seinfeld another example he used to have this joke that the punchline ended in the f word and he stopped doing it he's like because i think they were laughing at the f word at the language and that means the rest of the joke really wasn't that funny I don't know. Sorry, did that answer that question or did I ramble? <laughs> no, I actually that answered that question very much. So thank you. Okay, Ricky, as I mentioned before we go, I just want to talk uh, quickly about, you know, things like, well, TikTok and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and your website. So you have all of that then, right? All of it, the whole shebang. Some of it more well attended than others. 
A. Oh, yeah. And, then- and I'll say, I'll say, <laughs> you're like, and now say it. Um, I'm so bad at it that I, I forget to, to pimp my own stuff. Uh, probably the most uh, up to date things of whatever I'm doing. So, like I said, we did, um, we completed the movie that we filmed, the horror movie, and we did it with our own money. Um, a majority of it and we actually did a kickstarter to raise the funds to complete it and to do post-production and uh we got uh, over nine thousand dollars our goal was five thousand because like I said a lot of this money is just for post-production but a lot of my updates of shows what's going on with me jokes that i'm writing i, I use twitter best place to find out uh what's going on with me is twitter and that's at ricky glore Instagram, a lot of pictures of my daughter um, and my family, and that's at Glore Ricky. And TikTok, I think, is at Ricky Glore as well. I bounced around with names on that for a while, but I think it's back to at Ricky Glore because I was worried. I, I changed it because I was like, oh, I'll make this a puppet TikTok where it's <laughs> jokes done by a puppet because I used to do during um, COVID, I did a, a puppet news show called Weekend Pup Date. So it's basically weekend update, but with a puppet. And that was on YouTube. But yeah, I think the TikTok is back. Yeah. And follow me on Facebook. Um, you search me, it should be the only one there. And I think my full dry bar special is on YouTube. So check that out. Definitely clip clips up there. And Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, my album Spitting Image, which is 100% clean. Um, is online. You'll see a picture. You know, it's me and the album. If you see a picture of me and a microphone uh, and my baby, we're wearing the exact same outfit. It was a photo session that we did when she was one years old. Sure. Great. Okay, Ricky. We really appreciate, uh, you know, all, all your time. And we encourage everyone to you know, check out your, your social media. And do you have any upcoming uh, stand-up comedy shows coming up or I do. I have a few for the end of the, I have something almost every weekend for the end of the year, but uh, to give it a little bit more heads up and some club dates, um, I still use physical calendars. I have it in my phone, but I realize if I don't write it down physically, I'm, I forget it. Um, I have in January, if you're in the Indianapolis, uh, Indiana area, the 14th and 15th in January, I'm at Gutty's Comedy Club. That's a clean comedy club. Um, the following week, I'm in Illinois, not too far from Chicago, at the Comedy Shrine Comedy Club on the 21st and 22nd. And then to close out January on the 28th and 29th, I'm at the Gutty's Club, which is new in Minnesota. Okay, great. Okay, Ricky, any final thoughts or anything else uh, you know, you'd like to mention here? I'll leave that to you or any other, uh, and I'll try to make them. Maybe if you have like five rapid questions, I'm a, I'm a very long-winded person, so I'll try to keep them succinct answers, but whatever I always, um, I know that's the format is asking people questions of like, well, where did you, where did, how did you start? What was your inspirations? Blah, blah, blah. But are there any questions that come to mind from you just off the top of your head that, you would think of asking that don't seem like formulaic regular questions that you would maybe ask in any other interview. Well, let's see here. What can I, uh, 
ask uh, uh, what kind of well, what kind of ice cream you like? <laughs> so I had the I had the gastric sleeve surgery in September, and so I can't eat much right now. Um, I can really only eat things that fulfill a certain amount of protein, and then I get full really quickly. That's what I was drinking during this was uh, one of my protein shakes because it has 14 grams of protein in it. Um, but before surgery, uh, all ice cream. Um, Dairy Queen ice cream, Frosties from Wendy's, chocolate chip cookie dough. A uh, big fan of it's not ice cream, but lemon sorbet or like a like a lemon chill, lemon ice. Those are delicious. Great. Well, one thing I wanted to to ask quickly is, what do you think is your favorite impression that you do? I mean, is there one that gets you really excited to the point like? You find yourself always doing it or making TikToks or John C. Riley. It's the most unique. Um, because a lot of the impressions, uh, it's funny because Steve Coogan, who's a fantastic impressionist, I just saw him on um a Graham Norton show, and they were talking about impressions. And he said, you know, my artillery of impressions come from when I was in my 20s so it's a lot of outdated people that you might not know anymore and so like my impressions come from probably like the 80s and early 90s so like I don't do him really but I can Christopher Walken Sean Connery Sylvester Stallone Arnold Schwarzenegger Michael Caine Al Pacino uh, Morgan Freeman like it's a lot of impressions that people especially on TikTok you're seeing them do a lot of but John C. Riley from Wreck-It Ralph and Step Brothers, um, I fell into that voice because I can do a Kermit voice and it's kind of close. Uh, and I just started doing it and it really made me laugh. And again, it was unique. Not a lot of people do John C. Riley. On the flip side, not a lot of people, like when you say John C. Riley, you don't necessarily know him, but I'm always like, Wreck-It Ralph and Step Brothers. And they're like, oh yeah, no, I know who that is. So like in my, on my album, on my dry bar, I conclude it by doing, um, oh, I also really like doing Brian Johnson, lead singer of ACDC, which is part of the impression that I do. Uh, rock, rock stars before they came rock stars. Like how crazy would that be to have had like Brian Johnson as your waiter as a restaurant? So then doing that voice as kind of that like waiter approach, like, would you like to hear the specials? We got hot soup and bread and blah, blah, blah. But in that voice, um, John C. Riley, I do as part of every night before my daughter goes to bed, I read her a nursery rhyme as one of my favorite celebrities. And I do like Alan Rickman, uh, Michael Caine, Norm MacDonald. And then uh, I do a John C. Riley where I'm like, all right, little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet eating her curds and whey. Then like along came a spider that sat down beside her. And she was like... I'm gonna get out of here. And so <laughs> I like just anything that he says really cracks me up. And like, and I know I'm writing the stuff, um, but like doing it in that voice, there's such a gentility and kind of like a naive approach and like a young, easy, kind hearted spirit. Like it's just fun to. Do, it's just fun to do that voice man like i'm gonna get pizza with some extra pepperoni that's like regular pepperoni but extra like just it's kind of like a yogi berra quality 
<laughs> oh, great. Okay, uh, Ricky, just a few last uh, things here. Now, are we going to uh, ever see you on something like America's Got Talent? Or I have been in contact with a producer of America's Got Talent. What is hard is it's uh, it's always a very slim chance of getting on something like that. And I almost was on, um, oh, I can't even think of the show. NBC's new attempt at kind of a last comic standing. It was a couple years ago, Keenan Thompson, Jeff Foxworthy, and they had stand-ups, they had sketch com- comedians, they had improvisers. Erica Rhodes actually made it, a friend of mine. Um, I did not. I didn't get past the second uh, audition. Um, but I've had the opportunity to submit to America's Got Talent. What's crazy about that show is you don't get paid. You don't get paid unless you win. Because, and that's the, the loopholes that they get to do and that why, why they get to keep the show so cheap. Any show that there's a, a cash prize, that's how they get out of paying because it's a game it's technically a game show so for me to take time off from touring and then having a young child who i i try to keep my touring to weekends a lot and not during the week as much as possible um so i can be home a lot with my daughter i just it's hard to justify if I were to get selected, you know, going out to LA for like three, it's the same reason of kind of why I don't do cruise ships. You just have to be away for an extended amount of time that I'm just not ready for yet. Um, I, I have auditioned and they're actually on TikTok. I've auditioned for SNL twice. Um, the first one, uh, those audition tapes are up there. And the first one I did the regular audition, which was two original characters and uh, five impressions. And so I did that. My impressions, I put it in the way of um, James Corden. Like he does carpool karaoke, but I did bathroom karaoke. So it was him in a bathroom sitting next to different celebrities in the stall trying to make them sing. Um, John C. Riley is one of them. Seth Rogen is one of them. Sean Connery is one of them. Um, Bill Hader, John Lovitz. I think Kevin Smith, but I don't say anything as him. I just have beard and a hockey jersey and I just wave with a backwards cap. Um, more homaging Silent Bob. Uh, first audition, I sent in a writer's packet. I was reached out to by producers to send a writer's packet in in the video. I did that. I didn't hear anything. And I was like, that makes sense. Um, and then the next year, I was reached out to again. And I said, well, what do you want for the video? Because I'm kind of like, well, I did impressions and I did the two characters. I could do that again. And they're like, no, do whatever you want. It just has to be under five minutes. And so I was like, okay, I like that. Um, Andy Samberg had already been off the show. And there hadn't been kind of the musical film stuff in a while. And that's something I like to do. So my co-director, Nick Hyans, and I, I had this song that I was like, what if we shot it as a music music video? And that was the audition tape. So we sent it in and didn't hear anything for a while. And because at the time I didn't have an agent, I still don't have an agent. If anybody wants to be my agent, call me up. Um, I put down my wife's phone number 
uh, as my agent. And she was, I think, very pregnant at the time because this is in 2019 or she might have just we might have just had our child um and her phone was on the table while she was in the kitchen and i saw she was getting a phone call and it was a number she didn't have saved and it just said at the bottom new york city and i grabbed the phone i said to her i was like i put you down as my agent this could be saturday night live it's someone calling from new york city and she's like i'm sure it's not saturday night live i was like it could be it's new york city and she's like, well, I'll get the voicemail or whatever. I'm like, no, you got to answer it now. And I swiped to answer it. And I just held it up to her face. And she wasn't happy about that. And she's like, hello, this is Ali Dalianitis. And I could hear, uh, this is blah, 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 producer from Saturday Night Live. And I was like, oh, it's happening. And he's like, I just wanted to let you know, we loved Ricky's audition tape. Um, it actually made it past the first round of auditions but it is not moving forward to the third round. And I just wanted to let you know that we really did enjoy it. And my wife said, well, thank you for calling. Um, and then hung up and that was it. So that year is the year that, um, oh, I can't think of his name. That standup was fired before the season even started. And I was on tour at the time. I was doing a weekend in West Virginia when he got fired. And I was like, that wouldn't have happened to me. I wouldn't have gotten fired. They should have picked me because he was another heavier set white guy. And I was like, I could have been their heavier set white guy. But um, no, so both of that music video audition tape and my first audition tape are up on TikTok. Um, being on SNL, working on SNL in some way was always my dream. I thought it was my ultimate dream. But what I've realized, my ultimate dream is making a living entertaining people, whether that's writing um, for a sitcom, for movies, performing, whatever that is, that's the dream. And I love doing it. Okay, uh, Ricky, thanks uh, so much. My guest has been Ricky Glore, and you've been listening to the uh, What's Up America with uh, Mike Kara. Uh, and uh, please uh, catch us again uh, next time. Okay.